am aware of is that on uh, April the 14th, we're going to have our uh, spring picnic out at or Orlando Solaces again. Uh, other than that, we had the conference last week, and uh, everybody just did, as usual, a tremendous job pitching in and helping, and, and I've had comments made to me by different speakers that we've invited to come over the years that, and, and a lot of these men are men who have spoken in conferences all over the country, and that's what some of them do as a major part of their ministry. And they all say, end up saying something very similar to what John Whitcomb and Martin Bobgin said several years ago, and that is that they don't find conferences like this anymore, where the focus is so much on the Word and different uh, papers and speakers focusing on on biblical topics. So many pastors' conferences are all just how-tos on, you know, how to do a wedding service, or I'm being a little facetious here, but, you know, how to build a church, how to develop a choir, how to uh, uh, deal with this issue or that issue, rather than getting into the text of Scripture. In fact, several of them have made the comment that they haven't seen conference Bible conferences like ours since the 70s because the emphasis shifted so much in the 80s and the 90s, and there are very few people out there who really want to know the Bible. There are a lot of people out there who give lip service to that. And I've had a number of people come, uh, visitors here, Preston City, even earlier than that, back when I was at uh, Fellowship Bible Church in Irving, who would come in and say, oh, we want to, this is Bible study, this is what we want. They usually last about a week or two because they have to think. Ron Minton, who spoke three times at the conference on the Bible, the text and everything, had an opportunity on Saturday, between uh, right before the conference, I guess, to give a, a little short uh, three or four hour uh, talk or, or mini conference at a at a church down in uh, uh, Pasadena. And afterwards, he had to come by my house and pick something up. And he, we were talking about it. He said that, um, he said, he has seen such a dumbing down of congregations over the last 10 or 15 years, but even that congregation was below average. And I'm not saying this to dump on that congregation, but this is where we're going. And I, I have a hard time getting my mental fingers around this, as you do as well, I'm sure. But but they had never experienced a pastor, and this was a medium to large church, three or four hundred, but they had never experienced a pastor who ever taught from the original languages or talked about the original languages. You don't have to have a pastor who goes into the Greek and Hebrew in much detail, but but in many churches, I'll at least hear pastors say, well, the Greek here means or the Hebrew here means, and they'll make some um, comment about the original language. And Ron said that when he was trying to teach them about the fact that there were, in, in, in copying the New Testament manuscripts, that now and then copyists made errors, either intentionally or unintentionally, uh, a lot of the, of course, the problems that we have in manuscript, as he pointed out, probably about 98 to 99% of them are spelling changes or a word is left out or a words are, are, are switched. Uh, you might have some passages that refer to Jesus as, in the passage as, and the Lord spoke. 
Some manuscripts want to, some copyists wanted to clarify that and said, and Jesus spoke. And other copyists say, well, I've got one manuscript that says Lord, one that says Jesus. I'm going to put them together so we make sure we at least get it right. We got Lord Jesus said. Those are the kinds of errors that you often hear people make an issue out of when they say that there's over uh, 350,000 copyist errors in the New Testament. Well, there's fewer than 300,000 words in the New Testament. So it makes it sound like you've just got oh, all kinds of problems. And, and they're, in most cases, they're making mountains out of molecules, not even molehills. And, but he said these people just, he said the more he tried to teach, the more he kept having to come back to this new idea that they had that there were, uh, maybe some different words in different manuscripts, but that these, that, that the Bible was translated from the Greek. It was, it wasn't that they didn't agree with that. It's just that that was such a new idea for them that, that just that, that whole concept, just trying to get their mental fingers around it, that they didn't have the Word of God in their English translation, that it was in the original writings, was such a new idea that they just couldn't, they were just wrestling with that no matter what else he taught. That is, that is such an, for most of us here, that is such an elementary concept that it's hard for us to realize that probably 90% of even, quote, evangelical Christians out there are probably very much like that. And so sometimes when you look around and you say, well, I don't know why there aren't more people here, one of the reasons is that just to talk at a third grade level is extremely intimidating to a lot of people who are not even in preschool yet. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out if, they're, if they can accept the challenge of nursery school. So, uh, we, you know, that's, that's a tough thing I think that pastors today have to deal with is that I can't, I, and I, I don't do a very good job of this, but I can't teach to people as if they had the kind of edu- public education that I had because the average high school graduate today does not have the kind of high school education that I had or that probably anyone in this room had. And, and our cult, whole culture has dumbed down so much that if, and, and if teaching the word is about communicating in the koine, the koine has moved from what used to be a 12th grade level of English to about a second grade level of English. And using words like omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent just scares the pants off of a lot of people. So we have to recognize that. And how you, how we come to a point where we can reconcile that with the fact that we want to dig a little deeper is um, a bit of a challenge. So anyway, that's a, that just gives you an idea of what we do. We do a phenomenal job, and it's not just the speakers, but the people in the military, they say for every person on the front lines, there's nine people uh, dealing with logistics in the background, and they're the ones who enable the uh, guys to be on the front line. And that's true for conferences. It's true in churches and everything else. And so everybody just just... It's it's a, a total package team effort, and we all just do a great job, and you all do a great job, and and it's noticed. I mean, just the way it's run, the administration of the conference, the teaching, everything is is to those who come from 
from outside is a, is a tremendous testimony. Well, before we get started, let's uh, have a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, uh, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace is more than we can ever think of, ever imagine, ever fully uh, comprehend. But what we do comprehend, we are amazed by, that, that you have given us so great a salvation and that it is ours for free. It is not uh, what some pe- critics call cheap grace. It's free grace, that we do nothing. Jesus Christ did everything. He paid the price. We don't pay anything. He covered our sins completely, just as that blood that was put on the doorpost of the Jewish households in the Old Testament in Egypt, just as that blood, that lamb, paid that redemptive price for that household wasn't anything that they did. It was the application of that blood. It was God's provision that enabled them to have the uh, uh, to survive when God brought death to the firstborn in every household. It's just a gift, and for that we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for all that you have revealed to us, and we pray that you would just really help us to understand what we teach and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to to apply that in our lives as each part of doctrine becomes part of a formation that that strengthens, fortifies our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and in the previous lessons, I focused on the first verse, which was uh, expressing the problem that the apostles had to address in the church. There was a people problem, and the people problem was a result of two things, uh, as most people problems are. The first had to do with a... Um, and something was overlooked, and people were involved in a wrong or sinful attitude of, of uh, either prejudice or ignoring a, a large group of people uh, within the body of Christ in, uh, in Jerusalem. And these were the widows that came from outside of Judea who were referred to as Hellenists, and the and the Hebrews, the those who lived there, the native-born, those who lived in in uh, Judea and Galilee, over overlooked them. They there was a, a hierarchy, so to speak, that uh, that in some sense, if you were not from the land, you were looked down upon a little bit, and so that was a wrong or sinful attitude. So most people problems are made up with a on one component is there's some level of sin that's taking place. And at another level, there is uh, there are those who are reacting to it in one way or another. Now, what's interesting is the, that Luke doesn't pay attention to either one of those. Those are aspects of this that we infer from the text because of our knowledge of people and problems and the way things, what things develop. What Luke focuses on is something different. He is fo- his purpose is to talk about the expansion of the church. Now, he could have spent a lot of time talking about what caused this problem, who was responsible for this problem, and uh, 
what this more the specifics of how this problem became or came to the uh, attention of the apostles but he doesn't do that because because that really isn't that important what's important is how this situation was addressed by the apostles and showing a level a, a tremendous level of leadership and ability to innovate there's no divine guidance here they don't uh go into a room and pray and cast lots. They don't go into a room and pray and wait for God to move and give them a feeling that they're making the right decision. They analyze the situation, they pray about it, and they come to a a wise decision as they discuss it as to the best way to handle handle the problem. We're told in... Uh, and so this exhibits the leadership. It also exhibits the ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's working behind the scenes. It's not his overt ministry. It's more covert, which is what we see as normative in the church age, is that the Holy Spirit works in and through the church and in and through believers, and he's, it's not a necessarily an overt uh, external manifestation. This is part of a complete misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit that is manifest in uh, Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And what we see here is that the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing the growth process. And as this happens, we get the reports on the expansion of the church. And as the church is expanding, and of course, this is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and they're doing what Jesus said to do, and everything is just going to be wonderful, isn't it? No. No. What this leads to is a, a, a hostile reaction on the part of the leadership in Jerusalem, especially among the Sadducees. It leads to the uh, death of Stephen. And it leads to a, an increased persecution from the uh, Jewish uh, Jewish population that has rejected the Messiah. Primarily, the leadership. Uh, we're not. It's not an anti. It's not a, a general thing because, as I pointed out before, there's probably a l- huge number, tens of thousands of of Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah at this time, but the leadership has adopted a hostile attitude, and so there's, a, now, there, there's going to be an overt persecution, which brings about, uh, the, which forces the apostles to do what Jesus had commanded them to do. Back in Acts 1a, Jesus commanded them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and they haven't gotten out of Jerusalem yet. It's been about a year and a half, and they're still stuck in Jerusalem because they don't want to get outside of their comfort zone. And so as they become obedient and they're growing there, God brings persecution, allows his persecution to rise up to scatter them. And through that scattering, then they go out and the gospel goes to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. So the leadership and guidance, the covert leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit leads to persecution. And that persecution leads to the expansion of the church. So God, we see in this an instance, an illustration of Romans 8.28, how God works all things together for good. Not that all things are good, but that he's working behind the scenes to bring about his plan and his purposes. 
So we started off reading that in those days, that is, after the expansion of the church as expressed in Acts chapter 5, that during that time, uh, the number of the disciples was multiplying. And I pointed out, as we looked at this, that the term disciple means a learner or a student, that in the New Testament, the Gospels, it does, it's not a synonym for a believer. A disciple is someone who is going to sit and study under another teacher. He identifies himself as such, and he is, identifies himself with a specific teacher. But there were disciples who weren't believers, and there were believers who weren't disciples. But in the mentality of the New Testament, it is considered abnormal for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to not be a disciple. That's a disobedient child. Doesn't mean he's not a child. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved. Doesn't mean he needs to submit to the authority of God so that he can complete his salvation. It just means that he's a dis- that individual is a disobedient child. They are not pursuing the best, the maximum in terms of their spiritual life and spiritual growth. This is one of the things that that we ought to recognize is we weren't saved simply to sit back, fold our hands, wait for Jesus to come back so that we could go into heaven or into the millennial kingdom and everything would be done for us. We are saved for a purpose to fulfill this same mission that Jesus gave the apostles that's still being worked out in, in the history of the world and in the history of Christianity. And we were called to salvation for the purpose of becoming a mature believer. When you were born, think about this, when you were born and you were just that cute little cuddly screaming mass of flesh and blood, uh, five seconds after you were born, your parents wanted to have a child so that they could see that child grow up to become a worthwhile, productive adult. That's normative. We know there are exceptions to that, but that's normative. You want your child to grow up to be an adult. The goal of having a child is not to keep the child in diapers, not to maintain them in infancy and immaturity, but to train them to be an effective, uh, an effective, mature adult. That's the goal of the Christian life. God intends for us, the normative path is for us to grow to spiritual maturity. The problem is a lot of people along the way drop out. They don't want to be mature Christian. They are too in love with the world. They're like the Jews during the um, Exodus generation that when they got out into the wilderness, they said, God, you may be giving us food every day, giving us water every day, but the food just doesn't taste like that delicious uh, food back in Egypt. And we're rather bored with manna. And uh, so we want to go back to Egypt as slaves. They They would exchange freedom for slavery just because of the diet. Now, that's pretty silly and superficial, we say, but we're not much different from that because every time we go back to living on the basis of the sin nature rather than walking by the Spirit, we're making the same choice. And um, hopefully we quickly recover and we move forward because we understand that's, that's our destiny. So we are to be pursuing spiritual maturity. And in uh, Acts... The term the disciples is a term that is generally refers to those who are part of the visible church. Now, I don't know if I've used that terminology before, but we're going to use it some as we begin to develop our uh, understanding of the nature of the church. 
that the term church is used both in terms of a local church as well as a uh, as well as the church universal or the body of Christ which is made up of every believer alive or physically dead and sometimes it's re- referred to as the invisible church because there are a lot of people who don't show up in a local congregation who are members of the body of Christ and they're not visibly associated with the church so we talk about the invisible church, which is uh, also uh, a synonym for the church universal. And then we talk about the visible church, which are those who are physically associated with the church or with Christianity. But you can be a member of a, of a the visible church but not be saved. So the visible church isn't a synonym for... Uh, the lo- for the local church, meaning a local body of believers. They're just those who are physically associated with a physical body of believers. So you can go to, uh, you know, First, Me- First Metho Presbyterian Church, and they may be 500 people in there, and maybe only uh, 40 or so of those people are actually... Uh, believers in Jesus Christ and the rest of them are just there for a good time because they make connections and they can network with people in the community and have business connections and everything. They're part of the visible church, but they're not part of the body of Christ. So the term the disciples here is talking, uh, generally speaking, the visible church, those who are associated with local churches uh, within uh, uh, throughout the book of Acts, and for the most part, they're going to be uh, they're going to be believers. So their numbers are increasing as God the Holy Spirit is working, and it's in that context that you have this complaint that develops among those who are from outside of uh, Judea and Galilee, those who are from the diaspora, who widows who probably moved back to Jerusalem for a number of reasons. Some suggest one reason is that within Jewish thought. When a person uh, dies and their body goes in the grave, when the Messiah comes, they will, go to, they will go to Jerusalem. And so some have suggested that the reason a lot of uh, Hellenist widows went back to Jerusalem is because they wouldn't have so far to travel after they were resurrected. We laugh at things like that, but we all have silly superficial ideas like that. Uh, my mother you know, taught me a lot of great things about death growing up. Not long before she died, she said, I don't know if I just want to be in a box. It's awfully dark in there. And I went, what are you talking about? You're not going to be there. That's just your body. See, we all come up with crazy ideas every now and then. So you had people who had these these notions uh, about death. and And so the widows had moved, a lot of widows had moved to Judea because they would be close. And there's huge and ancient graveyards uh, those of you who've been to Israel, those who are going to go to Israel, you'll see when you're on the Mount of Olives, that whole uh, west side of the Mount of Olives pretty much over to the Garden of Gethsemane is an enormous graveyard. And they're all buried with their feet pointed towards the temple so that when the Messiah comes and they wake up, they'll come out of their grave and know which way to go. And it's been that way for, they've been buried there for centuries. So this is a very, very ancient, uh, ancient tradition. So now there's this, this problem between the Hellenists, and the, which are the widows from the diaspora, and the, the uh, widows among the, uh, those native to Judea and Galilee because they're being overlooked in the distribution. Uh, 
The response is that the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples, so they're going to have a congregational meeting. And this is important to see something here about, about their leadership. They're going to have a congregational meeting. They just don't pass a fatwa, unlike the fatwa our uh, mullah-like president passed last Friday. Uh, if you haven't paid attention because of the conference or other things, uh, we have this little problem with this with uh, the health care law and the health care mandate and the fact that initially it wasn't supposed to use federal funds to fund uh, abortion, which is viewed as contraception. And no matter what you believe about abortion, what you believe about contraception, that's really not the issue. You'll hear a lot of people who say, well, that's the issue, but they're, they're just, that's subterfuge. The issue is the federal government intruding upon people's right of conscience. And that is a time-honored legal reality that is the foundation really behind uh, the First, First Amendment. And so we've seen this develop as you had the uh, Health and Human uh, Services Secretary Sebelius uh, issue this, uh, I call it a fatwa because I'm being facetious, but it's not any different from these uh, uh, executive orders of the president or what comes down from the mullahs in, uh, in Iran because it's unconstitutional, it's tyrannical, and it is a statement that all religious-associated institutions must provide, uh, initially it was contraception or contraception needed to be covered, including abortion, by uh, religious-associated institutions. Well, that got the Roman Catholic bishops all upset, rightly so, and they understood the issue correctly. And then there was a response to that. Finally, the president changed it a little bit, and he said, well, it will we'll change a little bit. They just... The, the burden of the cost of this won't be on the religious-associated institution. It will be on an insurance company. Well, last Friday, late Friday afternoon, when nobody's paying attention because it's the end, of, bottom of the news cycle, heading into the weekend, everybody's leaving the office, he issued another one of his little fatwa executive orders that this is going to apply to self-insured religious-associated institutions self-insured, that means they handle, they, they cover their own insurance from within that religious-based organization. So he's dictating to them that they have to cover something that in the case of these Roman Catholic institutions has historically been against their religious and moral conscience beliefs. Now, this is fundamental. We have recognized as part of statutory law and precedent in this country that if a religious institution or some, a member of a recognized religious group, you can't go out and just start your own little sect next week and have your own little weird idea. It's well established that, for example, that Mennonites are pacifists, and therefore they and Quakers are pacifists, and therefore they have been exempted. From, uh, from military service because that's recognized as part of the deeply held historical belief of that uh, religious sect or denomination. And it is also inherent within Judaism that male babies should be circumcised. And yet we had a case last year where the city, uh, city council of San Francisco passed a law, municipal law, outlawing circumcision in San Francisco. 
And so that became a big issue and went to the courts, and the courts threw it out. But this issue isn't about circumcision. It's not about pacifism and serving in the military, and the issue isn't about abortion or birth control or contraception. It's about the right of conscience within a religious organization to determine what that they do, what they believe to be right and true according to their religious beliefs. And the federal government doesn't have the right under any condition to come in and interfere with that. That is tyranny of the worst, worst sort. That is as bad as, as any tyranny, as any theocratic tyranny of any uh, Islamic organization. Yet what is so twisted in this country is you get liberals on comedy talk shows completely twisting that and flipping that around and uh, and they don't see that as a problem, but then they accuse evangelicals of wanting to bring a moral theocracy to America, and that's the last thing that evangelicals want. And they'll cite all kinds of things related to um, you know different leaders, and I know many of those leaders, and they've never uh, held those views at all. But that's so. The what's good for the left is is not good for the right. There's no. Uh, there, there's no equality there. Everything is gets dumped on the right, which just shows the inequity and the lies and deception. Not that lies and deception don't come out of the right, but in this particular case, you really see an example of the distortion coming out of the left because there's a fundamental antagonism to religious belief and the belief in moral absolutes on the left. And this is one reason that there was such a irrational hostility to President Bush is when he identified the uh, perpetrators of 9/11 as evil doers. That was a term that immediately had the, that, that had the baggage of a moral absolute that there was good and there, there was absolute good and absolute evil, and they were on the side of absolute evil. And that just really made a lot of people in this country uncomfortable comfortable because they're, they've already completely sold out to moral, to moral relativism. So <clears throat> what we have here in Acts 6-2 now is the, a, a recognition of, the, of, a, of a decision that needs to be made in light of a problem, and that is the problem of this inequity of serving uh, the Hellenist uh, widows. Now, they make this decision by bringing in the congregation so that the congregation has input. It's not just this dictation. That's not part of either biblical Jewish background in the Old Testament or biblical New Testament is to force people against their will. That's not part of either dynamic. You have congregational input and involvement. And as they summon the congregation together, they say it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. I, and I want you to note something. Does, he doesn't say, Peter doesn't say it's not right. He doesn't say it's not wrong. He, he doesn't put it in those terms. He says it's not desirable. This is an aspect of wisdom and priority. Peter understood what the primary priority and mission was for the apostles, and that had to do with the spiritual goal of proclaiming the gospel and taking that to all, all of the nations. And so in light of that priority, it wasn't a desirable thing for them to be distracted by the mundane administrative 
uh, responsibilities of taking care of the congregation. Another thing that I should point out that's, that's also part of this is where was all this happening? They hadn't built the first church of Jerusalem yet. This is still taking place at the temple. And I'll make that point because what we'll see again and again as we go through Acts is during this transition period from the resurrection or from Pentecost to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 is the temple is still a focal point of a lot of activity among Jewish believers. They're they're not involved in um, false doctrine, but there is a recognition that that as long as that temple is standing, and until God has taken out the nation Israel, that these are still at least part of their tradition, even if it's not a, a way of salvation or a way of sanctification, it is part of their historical uh, historical uh, tradition. So they, the disciples say it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, the term there at the end there, serve tables, is, is a combination of two, two Greek words, the verb diakoneo, which I have on the screen, which means to serve, literally means to serve or to wait on a table, uh, but it came to be used in a broader context, context of taking care of someone or ministering to someone in some way, providing for someone in some way. I'll show you some examples of this in just a minute. The other word there is tables. Now, what tables is he talking about? Well, these are the same tables, remember, that Jesus turned over in the temple where the money changers were doing their money changing. They, there were tables there, which is where there was a distribution to the widows and orphans. And so what he's, what, what is being said here is that, that as the widows would come for their, uh, their aid, there, it had to be t- administered in a logical manner, in an organized manner, and that they that meant somebody had to be there to take names and record who got what, when, and where, and there's a large number of them. And the disciples can't be sitting at those tables uh, doing all of that accounting when they need to be out proclaiming the word of God. And so it's it's there's a ver- there's a physical reality to this uh, that. Uh, was historical based in the operation of the temple. So they're still functioning within uh, the temple precincts. Now, as we look at this word diakoneo, it is an important word because it is a word that is used later. the, The noun form, the cognate noun form is taken and applied to a church office. Now, this isn't the beginning of that church office known as a deacon, but it is the beginning of the idea of a split role within the local church. One group or individual focusing on the teaching of the word and prayer and another group focusing on leadership in relation to the physical assets and administration. That isn't going to be developed fully in terms of divine revelation until we get into uh, later uh, later, later New Testament books, and as the church begins to grow and expand, and so we see on the one hand, there's a revelation that occurs from God about pastors, uh, bishops, overseers on the one hand, deacons on the other hand, but it's it's general enough 
to where it can be applied in a lot of different cultural contexts. The main idea is you have one group that's focusing on the spiritual responsibilities and one group focusing on the physical responsibilities, and how they do that is not defined in Scripture. That allows for flexibility within the norms and within the, within the standards. But the key idea is service, and this is something that's emphasized a lot in Scripture, especially in relationship to leadership. So I want to stop a minute as we go through this because I think what we see here are some the embodiment of some excellent principles of leadership within, within the Scriptures. The first thing that we see here, uh, it's not stated overtly, but it is uh, clearly seen in the context, and that is that the apostles got the facts. A good leader gets all the facts before they make a decision or come up with a plan. They understand what the issues are and what the options are for solutions. This is extremely important to get as much information as you can, not to get emotionally involved, not to react because somebody came up to you and you may or may not like this person or their presentation or the way they approach it, and they they have a complaint that they didn't get what they were supposed to get, so they're being overlooked. Well, sometimes somebody, I, I can easily see where somebody might say, well, we'll just work it out. But, there's an, but that's not how the apostles handled it. They clearly investigated it and recognized there was a legitimate problem. Now, we're, we don't learn all of that, but we do learn that, that they, they recognize there's a problem and they come up with a solution. So they looked at the facts and gotten as many facts as they can before they make a, de- a decision. I learned this lesson years ago when I was in ROTC. When I was, uh, I think I was starting my junior year, and uh, <clears throat> we had a uh, always had some sort of uh, recruiting thing going on in uh, August during the orientation week when the freshman incoming freshmen would come up and we would try to uh, recruit uh, guys to come into ROTC. That was before they let women in the army and before they let women in ROTC. So they. Um, um, they had um, uh, they they had we got some helicopters, uh, got some Huey choppers from the uh, local uh, National Guard unit, and flew them in and they landed them in one of the parking lots at uh, on campus. Now remember this is 1972, so this is a time when you still have a lot of uh, anti-military feelings in Vietnam. So we had these helicopters, expensive government helicopters, parked out there on the on the parking lot, and so we needed to post a guard. Well, as the uh, highest-ranking cadet in my class, I was given that responsibility. And I was told to go out, put together a guard detail, to go around the clock, three men to guard the, um, to, to guard the helicopter. So I did that, and because it, we were getting back to school, a lot of the guys were friends who were in the Corps, so we spent a lot of time together. So through the afternoon and evening, uh, we were going by and checking on them, seeing how things were going just out of the fact that we were seeing guys who were coming back from the summer and wanted to catch up and that kind of a thing. And then around 1 o'clock in the morning, I was tired, so I went home and went to bed. Some hippies showed up about 2.30 in the morning and uh, started, uh, one of them got behind the helicopter and grabbed the uh, uh, the, the, the tail rotor and started moving the, the uh, helicopter around and one of uh, the other guys that was there 
that was guarding uh, took offense at that and went over and cold-cocked him. And uh, so there were some additional problems that developed because of that, and uh, the campus police came and arrested these two guys and hauled them down, arrested the whole guard detail and took them down, so there's no guard on the chopper from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. The person responsible for all the guard details on the chopper was home in bed asleep. Well, I didn't even hear about this until late the next day, and uh, what I heard was that I better not show up at the military science building or I was in deep trouble. So what happened? So I found out what had happened, and I'm, oh, no, you know, this is, this is it. This is terrible. And Monday went by, Tuesday went by. I had my first class in the military science building on Wednesday, and I went down to uh, went to class, and I opened the door to go into the building, and Major Matthews was at the end, other end of the hallway, like as far across to the back of the fellowship hall over there. And he looked at me, and he said, Dean, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you again this week. I figured that was a free pass. I didn't have to go to class. I went home and went through the week, but with a certain amount of worry and concern. The next Monday, he called me into his office. And I thought, oh, this is it. I'm going to get busted, and I'm going to flunk out and lose my scholarship and everything. And I went in and and um, reported, stood at tent in front of his desk, saluted. He said, okay, I've gotten all the facts. I've interviewed everybody. I was extremely angry with you last week, but after analyzing all the facts and talking to everybody concerned, I realize nobody informed you that one of your responsibilities was to show up at the changing of every guard detail to make sure it came off smoothly and without a hitch. You're dismissed. And I learned a lot from that about leadership. He was angry, but he waited to make any action or any decision until he had all of the facts. And once he had all the facts, he made the right decision based on those facts. That's what a good leader does. And that's what the apostles did. They they got all the facts. They made a good decision. They recognized it was a valid complaint and took appropriate action. Second thing we see is they didn't focus on passing the blame or making excuses. Over the years, I've seen a lot of personal problems come past me, and they involve friends, they involve couples, they involve business associates, and one thing they all have in common is when two people get crossways with each other, they all want to assign blame. One person always wants to feel like they're justified, and the reality is if they could just forget about whose fault it was to have the problem and focus on the solution, then they could get past it. But they're so concerned about assigning responsibility for the problems that they can't move forward. Now, sometimes somebody's obviously at fault. Sometimes they're egregiously at fault for one reason or another. But that's all in the past. That's not any different from rebounding, keep moving. I'm not saying ignore it or forget about it. That's not the point I'm making. The point is that rather than focusing on trying to assign blame and responsibility, we need to start with where we are and go forward. It's a mark of a great leader. When somebody takes over a new position as CEO of a company, somebody takes over a a military unit, somebody takes over uh, uh, the presidency, 
It does nobody any good to constantly blame the predecessor. It does nobody any good to constantly say, well, the reason we have this problem, I inherited that. That's not a good leader. A good leader says, well, that's the way things are, and here's my plan, let's go forward. He leads. He doesn't assign blame. He's not concerned about passing the buck through the assignation of blame. And that's usually what happens in these cases. Usually, I find even in marriage cases, when one person has really messed up in one way or another, the other person just constantly wants to vindictively drill it into them. They did this. Great. We know that. He knows that. She knows that. It's over with. Let's go forward. Let's solve the problem and move forward. Let's not just sit here and dwell on the fact that this person screwed up. We have to have a plan to move forward, and that's what they did. There's no focus here on who was at fault, uh, who was responsible. The focus is on solving the problem, creating a plan, and uh, moving forward. The third point we see here is that leadership is exemplified here in terms of, of, of service. Leadership is exemplified in terms of service. And what the Bible says about leadership in this area is completely different from what pagan culture sees as leadership. Pagan culture looks at leadership as being able to exercise some sort of tyranny and control over somebody else. That's not the biblical view of leadership. That is the pagan view of leadership. The biblical view of leadership looks at leadership in terms of, of, of service. A couple of passages I want to look at. I skipped a couple of slides here, so let, let me just go back and point this out. A couple of the uses of the word diakonao, meaning to minister. This word has the idea primarily of serving uh, someone uh, to accomplish a task. And the primary verse in which we see it uh, I'll look at the Mark verse in a minute, but the Matthew 20, 28 is a parallel, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Here you think the Son of Man, the future ruler of the kingdom, has a right to be served. But he comes, no, no, as king, as the future king of the and leader of the kingdom, I came to serve. That's fundamental to the biblical concept of, 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 of leadership. The word serve or diakoneo is also used in terms of providing so- someone with what they need, supplying their needs. In Mark one thirteen, uh, is a passage talking about Jesus in the wilderness after, uh, where he is fasting for 40 days, and then he's tempted by Satan. And we read he was, uh, after he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts, the angels ministered to him. There's that word diakoneo. The angels ministered to him. They, su- they supplied him with food and water. They brought nourishment to him. Matthew twenty five forty four says uh, this is a scenario at the, um, uh, at the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation period when there is a judgment on living, surviving Gentiles and how they treated uh, the Jews during that tribulation period. And those who... Um, uh, on the one hand, I think this is the um, uh, this is the goats. Je- after they're condemned, they say to Jesus, uh, "Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you?" 
When did we do this? When did we not minister to you? And what's the point is ministry would have involved taking care of the hunger, taking care of the thirst, uh, welcoming him in in terms of hospitality, clothing him as naked, uh, healing in terms of being sick, or or helping him in prison. And it's not talking about Jesus per se. It's talking about how he treated the Jewish people. And so those, the goats, those who were anti-Semitic in the, and hostile to the Jews in the tribulation period uh, are trying to excuse their guilt here. Uh, but the point that I'm looking at is just the word minister has to do with supplying those, uh, those needs. In Luke 8.3, the term minister, diakoneo, is used in terms of giving. Uh, Joanna, the wife of Husa Herod's steward, and Susanna. Now, these are two women who are relatively highly placed within Herod's administration. Uh, this would be Herod Agrippa. Uh, and many others who provided for him, that is Jesus, from their substance. That word for substance means their possessions. So they were highly placed in the administration of Herod. And so they were fairly wealthy, and they gave from their possessions to Jesus. They provided for him. That's that word uh, for minister, for diakoneo there, who provided for him, who ministered for him. That's that's diakoneo. So it has to do with giving. What we see in other passages is that leadership is based on humility, not on arrogance. It's not self-serving. It's not directed towards self. It's directed towards others. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. Mark chapter 10. This is one of those central passages related to leadership. Starts in verse 33. Jesus came to Capernaum. Capernaum was a small uh, fishing village on the shore of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And he comes into the house. This is where Peter lived, at probably Peter's house here. Um, he came into the house. We don't know for sure. I'm just guessing it would seem that would probably be the location. Uh, when he was in the house, he asked them, when was it you disputed uh, uh, on, on the road? Or what were you arguing about as we were coming here? And they kept silent. They're embarrassed. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Can you understand this? Here the disciples are with the Lord of the universe, the creator of everything, the future king of Israel, and they're bickering and arguing among themselves about who's going to be the biggest and the best in the kingdom. They don't even have a comprehension of what this is going to be like, and and they're all concerned about who's going to be top dog. He sat them down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, if you want the role of the preeminent role, he shall be last of all. The one who seeks to be out in front and to get the recognition and the approbation is not showing leadership. So if you want to be first, then you need to be last of all and what? Servant of all. See, when you look at people who are in the government, they're called public servants. That's because they serve us. They don't go up there to carve out their own little power kingdom. Personally, I think if somebody's been in office for more than 10 years, they need to go back into the private sector for a while. They have served their country. 
and they need to get out. It doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter anything else. There always needs to be fresh blood coming in, fresh ideas, fresh insight, and not let somebody become entrenched where they just amass uh, power and money. There was a individual I know, I'm not going to mention his name, that might give away the congressional district, who lives in a certain congressional district and told me about six months ago that he was considering running against the incumbent who's been in for three terms in Congress. And he said the reason is this guy had a net worth of about $150,000 when he went, went to Congress, and now he's worth $3 million. And I don't think that's right, and I think that, that there's something wrong with somebody who, who, who does that. I think he's right. But there are too many people in Congress who all of a sudden they realize we have a really good thing here and we can increase our wealth and our power and our prestige and, and we all of a sudden are somebody and forget that they're public servants. They are to serve us. They're not going there in order to enhance themselves. Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. When he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now, isn't that interesting? That statement by Jesus is in the context of this argument about who's best. And this, this is one of those passages that is frequently misunderstood and misapplied simply because it's not dealt with in the context of this dispute among the, uh, among the disciples. And what he's focusing on is humility that is being exemplified by, by a child and that, that the focus is not on accomplishments and power. Skip down to verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we now saw someone... Um, no, I'm not going to go into that first. Let's go to um, Mark 10. Was I in the wrong passage? Yeah, I may have been. I was in a completely wrong passage. But it was the same context. I was in Mark 9, uh, but that's the same dispute. So this was an ongoing little dispute they had. Um, let me get back in the right passage. Mark 10, 39. They said to him, uh, um, uh, this is another continuation of that, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said, now think of the arrogance of that. Hey, God, we want you to do what we want, want you to do. Sounds like some Christian sex popular today, the name it, claim it crowd. But Jesus says to them, uh, so what do you want me to do for you? I always love the way he says, he doesn't say, well, you idiot, you fool. He says, well, gee, what do you want me to do do for you? Uh, He draws them out, gives them enough rope to hang themselves. And they say to him, well, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Uh, he's going. That's identification. He's talking about his death. Are you able to go to the cross and suffer? See the path to glory. This is what got missed by a lot of people 
among the Jews is they were looking for a Messiah of glory, and they did realize from Isaiah 53 and a lot of other passages in the Old Testament that the, Isaiah, that the path to the royal glory of the Messianic kingdom led through a suffering Messiah, not, and then he would be a glorified Messiah. And, and what Jesus is saying here is basically, are you going to be able to suffer with the same suffering that I'm going to suffer with? And they, they in their arrogance and ignorance, say, we're able. And, um, and he goes on to say to them, well, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and you'll be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give, but that is for those for whom it is prepared. Now, when they heard it, when the rest of the ten heard it, now they get angry with James and John in verse, verse 41 and 42. And Jesus goes on to give a little uh, instruction here. He says, you know, in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And the term there is karyotes, which has to do with exercising a tyrannical authority. Those who rule among the Gentiles, the pagans, those who have no background in Torah or the Mosaic law, they rule by dominion, by tyranny. And he says, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Again, he's just reiterating the same thing he'd said back in Mark 9. Uh, Whoever's going to be great needs to be a servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Now, he doesn't use a... He, I'm glad that the New King James doesn't translate it servant of all. It doesn't say servant. It says slave. And then he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So being a servant is integral to being a good, a good leader. Another passage that speaks about this is in Luke chapter... 22, similar circumstance. I think it may be a different event, but it's very similar in terms of the language. Some people try to make these all the same event. I think that Jesus continually had to deal with this uh, arrogance problem among his disciples. And in Luke 22, 24, uh, we read, this time I'm going to make sure I have the right passage. Now, there was also a dispute among them, that is, among the disciples, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. See, he uses different vocabulary here than in the, in the Mark passage, so it's probably he's repeating himself. Oh, see, that's a key of good pedagogy is repetition. He taught the same things over and over again because the disciples had the same questions or the same problems over and over again, just like you and I. So he says, um, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. Let me give you another point of pedagogy. Jesus teaches by way of contrast here. He says, notice the, the Gentiles. They do it wrong. You're going to do it a different way. I've been criticized over the years because at times I teach by contrast. I say, now, we don't want to be like this group. I may mention charismatics or Baptists or pagans or atheists. I'm saying we need, there's a, the Christian thinks differently. We learn by contrast. Jesus taught by contrast. 
I teach by contrast, somebody always gets their feelings hurt and says, oh, you shouldn't say such negative things about the Baptists or about the Methodists. You know, it doesn't apply to every Methodist, every Baptist, every Catholic, every liberal, every Democrat, but it, it, it does apply to a lot of them. And that's why I point that out, because that is a characteristic of that group and their theology. And we learn by contrast. You, don't ever, you can't understand white, pure white white, unless you contrast it to maybe eggshell white or maybe some snow white or some other shade of white. Then all of a sudden you can see those subtle differences. Jesus does that. He says, on the contrary, the, he is greatest among you. Let him be as the younger. See, that's like the child that he's talking about over in that Mark passage I inadvertently went to in Mark 9. Let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It's not he who, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He's the one who should be honored at the table, he's pointing out. But he said... I am the one who serves. So leadership is not self-serving. It's not arrogant. Leadership is serving others. It's taking care of, of their needs. Another point about leadership is leadership delegates responsibilities. That's what these apostles are doing. They're going to develop some people to whom they're going to delegate these responsibilities. They can't do it all. No leader can do it all. He has to have trusted assistance to whom they delegate responsibility, and so they are going to choose those who are going to be capable of fulfilling those responsibilities. And then another point that we see in Acts 6 about leadership is it places a priority on spiritual realities. It's not spiritual versus physical, but they're placing a priority on the spiritual reality because that's the reality that encompasses everything, and we see that in the fact that when they when they decide who is going to be uh, who they're going to choose, they look for seven men of good reputation. That is, everybody knows that these things are true about them. They're going to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they will be able to take care of this task responsibly and be trusted by the Hellenistic widows that aren't trusting the leadership real well at this particular point. So in verse uh, three, we uh, at the end of the verse, we see the rest of the qualification here that there are seven men of good reputation. That means they are have it's a uh, present passive participle, which means they receive a good testimony. Other people are saying good things about them, so they're known. It's not they're not taking them on their word, but what others have said about them. So seven men of good witness, literally, who have been witnessed about well. And then they are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now that brings up another issue that I'm going to, uh, uh, we're out of time, so I'll wait till next week. But what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Does this mean to be filled by means of the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, or is this something else? Come back next week to learn why it is something else. This is not not having doesn't have anything to do with being in fellowship. It has to do with the results of spending time in fellowship. So we'll come back to that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and focus on your word, to be reminded about these leadership characteristics, because in some sense we all have leadership responsibilities, whether it's 
within the home, or whether it is in an office, whatever the uh, situation may be, we all have certain kinds of or areas, spheres of leadership and authority and responsibility. And we pray that we might uh, take these principles to heart, recognizing that this is uh, your instruction to us, and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us how we can apply this objectively to every area of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.